Welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organised Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks, from Brisbane in Australia. And today, I'm very happy to be talking to Michael Armstrong about his new book, They Wish They Were Honest, The Nap Commission and New York City Police Corruption. I'm particularly pleased because I do a lot of work in police corruption and the overlap with organised crime. So this piqued my interest when I saw it at the American Society of Criminology conference on one of the bookstalls. So I bought it immediately and I've only just had the chance to contact Michael and get the interview. So welcome, Michael. Thank you for having the interview. Well, thank you for uh, for calling me up. I'm happy to talk. Great, great. So um, let's start off with a bit of background about yourself, what your career path was, and how you ended up writing this particular book. Uh, well, I, uh, after, uh, after uh, law school, I, I, I got a job in a, in, a, in a law firm and then bounced back and forth in, in, uh, in various law enforcement jobs. I was an assistant U.S. attorney here in the federal prosecutor's office. And, uh, and I was, uh, but then I, I was selected to be counsel to, uh, a commission that was looking into police corruption here in the city. And that's what, uh, what this, what this book is about. Uh, I, um, I then went on to do a couple of other things in law enforcement and wound up practicing law, and that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years, I guess. It's a long, long time. <laughs> uh, and uh, so you've written the book now. What sort of prompted you to get around to doing it, or was it a long project that just took a while to complete? Well, what happened was that back in the late 70s, I sat down and uh, uh, people kept telling me because of because of my uh, 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 litigators collect uh, war stories. You collect stories that you uh, either entertain or bore people with at cocktail parties about all the people you run into and the funny things that happen and all that. And uh, people kept saying to me, you ought to write a book. And uh, what I did was, I said, well, all right. And what I, I uh, driving back and forth to work, I took a handheld recorder, and I just dictated the those stories as I told them, and I collected this mound of of, of stuff that I never even read. I mean, <laughs> my secretary would type it up, put it in a drawer, and I forgot about it. And uh, I, I collected uh, hundreds of pages of this stuff, and it would be sitting there still in uh, in that drawer if it hadn't been for the fact that I was put on a case in California and found myself on airplanes going back and forth to California all the time with nothing to do. And I said, well, I'll sit and I'll, I'll edit it. And this was, as I say, in the in in I guess the mid '80s by that time, and I uh, I, uh, I edited it into four sections of my experiences, which one was my federal prosecutor's experience, two was my experience as I was district attorney in uh, in Queens County here for a while, another was my prosecutorial efforts in in private practice, and one was the NAP commission. And uh, I took it around. I gave it to a, an agent, and the agent took it around, and he and they came back with all of the publishers said the same thing. They said the writing wasn't that bad, which kind of surprised me because <laughs> I'm not I'm not really a, a, a writer. I can write briefs, but I can. Oh, it's very and readable. Said, it's, it's very readable. I enjoyed reading it. Well, th- thank you kindly. I was surprised to hear that apparently people do find it readable. But uh, but what they said was at uh, back then, and this is you know many years ago, they said it was too anecdotal. It 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 went just. I had deliberately taken myself out of it because I. Um, sick and tired of these books of lawyers running around saying how they're heroes all the time. And I just put it in a kind of a fly-on-the-wall approach. You know, I was here just telling anecdotes. And it was too anecdotal, and it needed a thread. It needed to... Uh, put, uh, uh, publishers all said, put yourself back in it, make it more autobiographical. I didn't have time to do that, so I threw it all back in a drawer again. <laughs> and it sat there for another 15, 20 years. And then it occurred to me that the Nat Commission portion of it tells its own story and has its own plot uh, of the commission that got started and struggled and finally made it. it. It has its own. So I took that out and redid that. And uh, and that's how the Nat Commission book wound up uh, being written. And it has, it has 
two distinct advantages. Number one, the substance of the book was really written back uh, close to the time when everything happened. But now, since it's coming out 40 years after the events, uh, most people who might contradict me with respect to the book are dead. So, <laughs> you can't so, define the dead. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> so I can uh, I can uh, say whatever I want. Yeah. Uh, but, look. Uh, so that's how it got written. It's a kind of a long-winded way to explain it, but that's that's the way it got written. Well, it gives us all hope that one day we can all finish off those grand ideas of books we've all had in our heads. So that's right. That's right. <laughs> we just need secretaries to type them up for us. Um, that's right. Well, might be best then if we actually uh, let you explain how the NAP Commission came into existence. Okay. The the uh, it started with. Uh, uh, a, a, a police officer by the name of Frank Serpico. And Frank Serpico, there was a, a movie made about his exploits with an Al Pacino, I believe, got an Academy Award for playing Frank Serpico. It was a, it was a very good movie. And uh, uh, Serpico uh, was a police officer who in in the late 60s had been assigned to a plainclothes division and seen corruption all around him and had tried to make it known uh, to his superiors and was unsuccessful in doing so and ultimately with the aid of uh, of uh, a, uh, a sidekick, uh, David Dirk, uh, he went to the mayor's office and tried to tell him about it and uh, tell them about it and uh, uh, again, nothing nothing really was done and wound up going to a reporter by the name of David Burnham, who was an investigative reporter with the with the, the New York Times. Burnham wrote a front page article uh, in June of 1970 uh, about uh, what Serpico had told him and about other things that that, that uh, Burnham looked into. And uh, Mayor John Lindsay, who was the mayor at the time, and who had presidential aspirations, uh, uh, he, he, he couldn't be stuck with this, uh, uh, this police scandal on his hands or you know, allegation of it. And so he, after a, a full start or two, he, trying to deal with it in one way or another, he, uh, he established a citizen's commission. And a citizen's commission would be a private commission uh, funded uh, by out-of-city funds uh, with uh, and it was headed by Whitman Knapp. Whitman Knapp was a Wall Street uh, lawyer, a name partner in a firm who had been a prosecutor in the district attorney's office in Manhattan and who also was very well connected uh, in, in town. And uh, then they appointed uh, other commissioners who were a pretty impressive group. They included uh, Cyrus Vance, who later was to go on to be uh, Secretary of State. He, he had been uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense. And uh, Franklin Thomas, who uh, went on to be President of the Ford Foundation, uh, and uh, and a couple other people who were... It was a, it was a good group. And then they decided, because a couple of them knew me, uh, uh, asked me to be the, the counsel to the commission, which was the... Uh, 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 I would be the full-time paid uh, person heading up the staff, and uh, we put together a staff, uh, and our job was to look at the patterns of corruption in the city so as to answer the charges that Serpico made or to flesh them out or to see uh, see if if problems that existed in 67 and 68 as he saw them still existed in 70 and what their dimensions were and uh, we got a, a group of, uh, of agents from the federal government uh, we figured we didn't want to get ex-cops or cops because uh, the, it's not too successful in investigating yourself uh, uh, and uh, and uh, we, we got people from the who had been in the FBI we uh, or the uh, um, intelligence of the, the army. Uh, one guy was was there from the one guy from uh, another guy from uh, uh, immigration. When we got uh, on loan from the federal government, uh, we went down and 
talked them into lending us uh, agents from the Narcotic Bureau of Narcotics and the uh, Internal Revenue uh, Service and uh, and also the Postal Service. So we had this a dozen ex or current federal agents who were uh, all very good agents, and uh, and and then we just set out to to see what we could find out about a 32,000-man police department that we knew nothing about. You explained at the beginning of the book a lot of the politics behind it, and especially your difficulties in getting and maintaining funding for the organization. And I felt like I was reading a story similar to watching The Wire on TV. All the background <laughs> politics was quite informative. Um, I've worked in government, so I understand all this. Do you want to just run through a bit of that for the audience? Sure. Well, it wasn't uh, uh, too complex, I don't think. We... Uh, John Lindsay uh, set up the commission in order to, uh, as I say, satisfy the the public uh, 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 cry for it in the newspaper and in the New York Times. Uh, And he only had, uh, I think, 350,000 or something like that dollars to give us, and this was in July or June of 1970, and it it was to last... Uh, that's all he had because he said he couldn't give us any more money until the end of the year because that's all he all he, he had in, in his funds. Now, when it came to the end of the year, Whitnap said to him, said, listen, uh, listen we're, 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 we might go for two years and it, we can't do it on this amount of money. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But, uh, at the end of the year, I will see to it that money is uh, appropriated to have you uh, go forward. And uh, but then when the end of the year started looming, we began to realize that the city was in a financial crunch at the time, and there was no way that the city legislature was going to vote funds for uh, for a, a, an investigative body looking into the police department. A lot of the people on the on the city council were were allies of the department, and uh, we had difficulty getting through, as it turns out, uh, just a resolution to continue our subpoena power. Uh, So we had to go and find our own funds, and we did. We went down to the federal government and talked them into giving us a grant. And Whitnap had a lot of connections in town, and we went around to all these foundations and tried to get get money from uh, money from from them, and we would get we would get uh, contributions from from people, and it uh, we wound up uh, just cobbling together enough money for us to uh, to have enough money to take us at least through the next six months, and uh, uh, the, the total cost of the commission as it wound up was seven hundred and forty nine thousand one hundred and twenty dollars, as I read it from the report. And uh, we had here a dozen different foundations that we got money from, and and uh, so. But our suspicion was my suspicion, and I don't know if it's true, was that maybe John Lindsay knew all along that he was never going to be able to get the money for us, and that uh, that we would have to go out of business, and he would get credit for setting us up, but uh, would not have to suffer the results of our really finding out what was going on but that's just a speculation <laughs> and uh, uh, I since have have become friendly with uh, with some of my antagonists at the time in city government uh, and one of them Jay Kriegel who was the mayor's right hand man who almost got indicted as a result of his testimony in our ultimate hearings uh, and I have trotted this theory out to Jay uh, and and he just smiles and says you give us too much credit we didn't figure things out that much <laughs> so so I I don't know what the ins and outs were but I know that we were we were short of money we had to go out and get it ourselves we did and that took us to July of, uh, of 71 at which time we cut to the bone and lasted for uh, with just one lawyer and one two investigators uh, to uh, October when we had our our hearings oh, wow um, now the story contains quite a few real characters um, 
and we'll get to Phillips and um, Droge. If I pronounced that correctly, is it Droge? Droge, yeah. right? But uh, I think to start it off, we might discuss um, Xavier Herbert. I know she wasn't directly responsible, uh, directly. Xaviera, Xaviera Hollander. Sorry, yes, uh, yes, yeah. and um, yeah. Otherwise she, known she as features, the happy hooker. Exactly. So she features quite prominently uh, in what began your successful investigations. That's uh, that's absolutely true. We well, what what began it? We were we were looking around for some way to break in and find out what what uh, uh, you know how, how we would look at corruption in the city. And one of the ways we 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 dreamed up was well maybe we'll we'll try and get some of the prostitutes who obviously pay off to talk to us and we invented this scam whereby we would send our agents uh, uh dress them up like uh, midwestern uh, businessmen and send them into a, uh, a, a a hotel bar and get them talking to the prostitutes and and uh, then maybe get them to make admissions and then we would threaten them say look this is going to be a federal offense if you don't talk to us just tell us about police corruption and and uh, uh, in order to do that we gave our 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 agents uh, identification uh, including driver's licenses and things that we made up for them that uh, and we we picked the names for that out of uh out of a Chicago phone book, we took actual names because maybe somebody would, uh, one of these people might call the guy up or something. And all we really managed to accomplish uh, in in this uh, somewhat heavy-handed scheme was uh, that one of the hookers that we approached actually did follow through and didn't just look up the name of the guy in the Chicago phone book, but called him up. And this guy gets a phone call from a New York hooker, which uh, was uh, also taken by his wife. And uh, we we had to uh, we had to make explanations to this guy of our investigation, which may not have been too good from a security standpoint, but was necessary in order to save his marriage. And while we were going through this kind of heavy-handed uh, operation, the fellow who made our uh, electronic equipment saw us at it because we were using the equipment, and uh, he was a guy named Teddy Ratnoff. And Teddy Ratnoff was this greasy little bald-headed guy with a with beady eyes. He, he really, he really was a was an awful little person. And uh, uh, but he made wonderful electronic equipment, and. Uh, he said, "Look, you you you, you want to get a prostitute? I got a prostitute for you." Well, he had a connection with Zavera Hollander, and his connection with Zavera Hollander was that Zavera was had this fellow writing a book about her called The Happy Hooker, which ultimately became a best-selling book and a uh, and, and a movie. And Teddy was uh, was recording. Uh, the goings-on in in uh, Xaviera Hollander's uh, place of business, which was an apartment on 55th Street, and uh, and so he was he was he was getting records of what was going on their recordings, and also some some uh, some films actually, and uh, and so he knew her, and he knew that she ha- ha- wanted to. Pay off some police to get to get uh, relief in in uh, in number one. Just generally, she didn't want to be harassed. And number two, she had a couple of court cases that uh, that that uh, needed needed fixing. And uh, Ratnoff suggested to us that he could be the intermediary between Zaviera and and uh, the, the cops who uh, who. Who would be paid off, and he would wear his own equipment, and then he would, uh, and and we would get the the results. And with some trepidation, we we agreed because Ratnoff was so unreliable. But uh, uh, he then undertook to be the the intermediary between Saviera, who was paying off money, and a particular cop who was the. The, the center paymaster who was going to handle all of these things, and that guy's name was Bill Phillips, 
and uh, and we uh, took uh, uh, recordings and actually got films of the meetings between uh, Ratnoff and 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 Phillips. Uh, where uh, we, we, you'd actually see money changing hands. And the reason we could take films is because I had a deal with the local, two local television stations that uh, we would take them along on certain of our operations. Uh, and uh, and uh, they would take the, the films of it with special cameras that we certainly didn't have the ability to get. And uh, then they would give us the tapes and, uh, and the films, and we would and and not ask any questions with the agreement that if when our hearings came along, they would have all the outtakes and they would have the ability to have uh, uh, all the outtakes that we didn't use. So, so we were able to actually film and record these conversations. And Ratnoff... Uh, went and spent uh, uh, a number of weeks uh, collecting information uh, about the dealings between Zaviera and Phillips, where uh, all in all, there about $8,000 was paid from Zaviera to Phillips for uh, various things. He, had, uh, he was going to fix one case that was already in court and then fix another case that was headed for court, and it was that case involved a lawyer by the name of Erwin Germays and a and a judge by the name of Mitchell Schweitzer, who was a very well-known judge here. And, uh, and, and that was our, our big target as we, as we saw the investigation continue. Mm. Uh, so uh, that, that was Zavera, and that was her connection. I never met Zavera Hollander, but uh, until later, after the thing was all over. Uh, but she was certainly very, very uh, key in getting us going because she was the one who, who, who paid the money that that we were taking pictures of. Yeah, and that was—I mean—you explained in the book how hard it was in the beginning to even find ways to discover where corruption was, and then you looked out the window, and well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, at the beginning, at the beginning, I mean, after all, we were. I think we knew kind of what we were doing. I had I had uh, uh, five attorneys working for me who had experience. Two, Otto Obermeyer and Paul Rooney, were two fellows who uh, worked with me in the uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and uh, and uh, and both of them, Otto went on to be uh, U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, and Paul went on to a distinguished career as a defense counsel, and and uh, also was. Uh, an assistant uh, uh, mayor under Koch, I think, in, in, a, in a position. And then we had uh, Nick Scapetta was another fellow who had uh, had experience in the DA's office, and he ultimately went on to become fire commissioner. And then we had uh, Milt Williams was a, was a, an ex-cop who, uh, who was another one of our lawyers and wound up being chief judge of the appellate division, presiding justice in the appellate division here in New York. And, uh, um, uh, and uh, it was, uh, uh, it was a good group of, of lawyers and a good group of, of the dozen investigators that I've described to you, but we didn't know really much about the department and we were just kind of trying to doing things like working out that, that, that scam, uh, with the prostitutes trying to break our way in. And, and the book describes other ways in which we floundered about uh, trying to uh, uh, find uh, ways to, uh, to, to come up with the patterns of corruption. Everybody kind of knew, everyone would tell us there's corruption, but no one was willing to testify about it, and we couldn't, we didn't catch anybody doing it, and until, until the Phillips episode, really. And, uh, the thing that you mentioned is that we're, uh, one of our guys is just sitting in the window looking out, we're, we're up about the 10th floor or something like that, uh, and in the, the, the alleyway behind us, uh, was the back door to the restaurant that was the local watering hole for the U.S. assistant U.S. attorneys, uh, a place called Gassner's. And uh, every day, this, suddenly this guy noticed that this police car would pull up to the back of the door, 
and the gasner's waiter would come out with a tray with napkins over his arm and serve this luxurious meal to the cops who were there. Well, we didn't want to get into meals because we figured that would trivialize our, uh, you know, if, if if our opponents could say, well, look at them, we pay all this money and they're out there talk, you know, trying to catch cops doing free meals. So we, we didn't, we, we weren't looking for that, but he got there, it was right under our under our nose. Uh, and we finally made a mention of it uh, in our final the, the reports, that, not our public report, but in the reports that we gave to the police department in our, in our when we wound things up. And and Gaster's got in trouble, and I got a whole lot of crap from the people who uh, <laughs> my my buddies who went there to uh, to have dinners. And I went, why couldn't I leave Gaster's alone? But yeah. um, but no, we we floundered about a good deal, and uh, and and then and then got on through Zvera, got on to this the thing with Phillips, and then it was the confrontation with Phillips that led ultimately to our success. And he's a quite amazing character. He sounds like a bit of a sociopath in his attitude because you've got to. I, I should have checked the quote before we started. There's a great one where you describe what he's like, and you ended up that he has absolutely no morals whatsoever. Yeah, but, yeah. But he ends up yeah. being um, one of your best assets. Oh, well, the, what happened was uh, we were uh, uh, conducting the the surveillance of Phillips, and we were uh, closing in on, uh, on, on trying to... Uh, 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 make uh, get convincing evidence of the fact that Phillips was going to pay off this judge, and and uh, there was a meeting in the lawyers Urban Germaise's office uh, one day, and Teddy Ratnoff went into the meeting, and he's wired as usual, and on this occasion, Phillips uh, decides to pat him down. He pats him down and he finds the recorder, which was uh, not the recorder, the transmitter, which was concealed in the in the small of his back. And uh, and Philip says, "What's this? What's this?" And uh, Ratnoff says, uh, "It's it's 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 a, a, a paging device for telephones. You know, you it, uh, the Empire State Building sends out a message, and I know that there's a there's a call for me." Phillips rips his shirt off and. And takes over. Well, you better make this thing work. And he, Ratnov, this fat little guy, is standing there half naked, uh, while, of course, our agents who are listening down below uh, are running uh, to his rescue. They they grab a a cop along the way to uh, to have to for, to have help. A guy was giving a ticket to a peddler, and they grabbed him and brought him along, and uh, and. Radnov is standing there. Phillips is 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 berating him, and uh, uh, Germaise is standing back, kind of in shock. And uh, the door bursts open, and in comes uh, Brian Brew, who was our our agent, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and White was our other agent, and he and they they come in and uh, say, "We're from the NAP Commission." They scoop up Ratnoff and they scoop up uh, the brew turn to uh, uh, Germaze and Phillips said is that equipment yours because Phillips had ripped the equipment right off of, uh, of, uh, of Ratnoff and actually thrown it out the door and closed the door and it's still recorded through the door <laughs> it, it, it was very very good equipment and uh, they said no no I said alright it's mine I'm taking they picked it up and they left well you know, we were blown. Uh, we knew we were blown at that time. And Jermaine's uh, uh, indeed, uh, uh, we called him up. He came down and and took the fifth and didn't say. And then took off, just packed everything up and went. I believe you. Know, I understand he went to Israel and never came back. This was the uh, lawyer. The lawyer Jermaine's yeah. was yeah. But Phillips, he he had no place really to go and. Uh, and about three or four days later, we we finally went to his office, and his office was a, a restaurant here called B.J. Clark's, which is uh, 
a kind of a, of a well-known place here, and uh, uh, his his office kind of was was the phone booth at the end of the bar at P.J. Clark, and he was he was having lunch that day with uh, with Rocky Graziano, who was a former middleweight champion boxer, who was a friend of Phillips's. And our guys, uh, Brew uh, and uh, another fellow, Parenti, came in and and uh, just walked up to him while having lunch and said, uh, "We'd like to like to talk to you." Uh, and Phillips knew that he recognized Brew, and he knew he knew what was up. And Brew said, "We've got you on stereo." And he said, "Yeah, I know you do." And he said, well, "Would you mind if you're coming down? We'd like to talk to you in our office." And he said, "That's all right." So he comes down. And uh, on the way down, he's saying to uh, to Brew and Parenti, he said, you guys are good. He said, you guys, you did one heck of a job. He said, but that guy Ratnoff, if I ever get him, <laughs> he, 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 he did not appreciate being betrayed by Ratnoff. And, he eventually uh, he gets his to... own back against him, too, in a small he, he way. Gets what? He eventually yes, got yes, some yes, vengeance yes. against the, him. At the hearings, at the hearings, yeah, I'll, I'll explain that later on. That's yeah, but but Ratnoff at the time uh, was was well. We the, the, I'm skipping actually because on the way down, uh, Phillips acknowledged uh, you know generally kind of the situation he's in, but we had no real hope that he would ever really cooperate and talk to us. I mean, this guy, 13 years on the job, he was thoroughly corrupt. He was tough as nails, and you had this myth about the blue wall of silence that uh, no cops never talked about other cops, and that's what uh, everyone, you know, everyone assumed. You'd, you'd just never get a police officer to talk about another police officer, even if you caught him in doing something illegal. Well, we figured we might as well try the old Mutt and Jeff, good cop, bad cop thing on, on Phillips. And uh, we brought him down to the office and had him go into an office with Paul Rooney, my sidekick, who, who uh, was going to be, you know, yell at him and be nasty at him. And then I was going to come in and be the good guy with, would you like a cigarette? And we're going to try that. It was a forlorn hope, but uh, you might as well try something. And... Uh, so he goes in the office with with Rooney, and uh, he's there for about thirty seconds or a minute. And uh, my my buzzer rings, and it's Paul Rooney saying to me, "He's ready to go." Uh, and I walk into the office, and there's Philip sitting there, and I start giving him a lecture about, uh, well, you know, if you're going to cooperate with us, you can't be a little bit pregnant, and you you know you can't go. Got to go all the way over the fence. You can't be giving the usual stuff. And he stops me and looks at me, kind of steely-eyed, and he said, Look, Mr. Armstrong, I've been sitting where you're sitting, and I've had people sitting where I'm sitting. I know what i got to do. And the next day, wearing a wire, he went out and made cases against four guys in organized crime. And then from then on, he worked with us for three months as an undercover agent collecting information against uh, corrupt police officers. And he then was the star witness in our, in the hearings that we, that we, uh, we had. Mm. So that, I mean, that's quite an amazing thing. I mean, it's the, the number one thing you'll read about, as I said, I study police corruption and the blue wall of silence is it. Um, but I know from the transcripts of the commissions of inquiry over in Australia that, Everyone says, as long as we all say nothing, we'll be safe. But someone always breaks. There's always someone well, who wants to save themselves. It's a prisoner's dilemma. Sure, sure. And and but the idea that there's a special loyalty in the police department, I'm sure, is true to a certain degree. But but heck, the, we concluded that the only reason that cops didn't talk was that nobody really asked them. I mean, everybody was everybody was so certain that there was this blue wall of silence that everybody was very timid of trying to trying to break it. And we we really we had I think there were five cops altogether that we put, had in a position of uh, of putting some pressure on them, and and four of them talked, and uh, with uh, with greater or lesser. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, well, I'm just a just a patrolman, but another guy, uh, 
whom we really didn't have anything on, but who was ready to talk anyway, was this fellow Bob Lucy, who we actually had gotten before Phillips, and uh, he was in a narcotics detective in the special investigations unit of the narcotics department, and those guys dealt with the top narcotics cases there were, organized crime, and the whole unit, special SIU, was was totally corrupt from top to bottom. And this guy, uh, he he sat down with Nick Scapetta, who was one of our uh, one of our uh, lawyers, and the two of them just got talking one time, and uh, he was just ready to talk. Uh, uh, Lucy was his name is Bob Lucy, and uh, he uh, uh, he agreed to work with us, and he worked with us for just a little while, and we uh, determined that that. Uh, he was just too valuable to keep, and we turned him over to the federal government to make cases against uh, narcotics people. And he can, he did. He, he, our idea was that we were going to hold hearings in a few months, and that would have to end his uh, his usefulness if he was working for us. But if he were working undercover, he could uh, uh, he could work for you know maybe a year or two. And we had a meeting with the the chief of the criminal division of the justice department and with the u.s attorney and and uh and turned him over to them uh and uh we turned lucy over we also had turned scapetta because he was the guy who was working with him and two of our agents so the transaction did not wind up to be a very profitable one for us mm. uh, because we had this this uh this possible great breakthrough and it turns out that we just we we just couldn't keep it because it was just too much there. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing there in your book about how I think even Phillips would say that he wouldn't take drug money because it was dirty money. So there was a levels of morality within the corrupt culture about what money people would take. I think I think that's absolutely true. That there was it was a turning point. It was a turning point in generationally. I think in the department uh, and in the in the country. Uh, we're talking about about 1970. The cops there, a lot of them had been cops who had been in World War II uh, in Korea. They they had a, a, a kind of a different attitude, and the society was frowned on drugs. And Bill Phillips himself, who was as thorough a crook as you could be, uh, he said that he wouldn't deal with with narcotics and. And he said to us that he thought that the narcotics cops were clean. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, they were not, and 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 they had begun to to uh, take the, the to succumb to the the uh, temptations that are inherent in narcotics uh, enforcement. And uh, but Bill didn't know about it. He then rode in a car with a guy one day who had come out of narcotics, and he came back and told us, he said, remember what I told you about narcotics being clean? Well, forget about it. And he told us what this guy had been telling him, which we already knew because we had already, we had already been talking to, to Lucy. But there was, a, there was a, a change right about that time where the culture itself uh, in, the, in the country, I think, became more tolerant of drugs and the the police department uh, did too. We we found uh, uh, not only Lucy, but we found we had a couple of junkies who worked for us, Tank and Slim, who were these two junkies who we uh, who they would work for uh, a, a particular uh, a narcotics squad, uh, whereby these guys in the squad would. Would order uh, liquor or other merchandise from these guys, and the, the two junkies would go out and steal it, and then bring it back and give it to the cops, and the cops would pay them off in heroin. And uh, and we got we wired them up and and got evidence of cops doing doing just that yeah. brazenly. And uh, so the 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 narcotic situation. Uh, was 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 in in, in flux at the time. Uh, yeah. um, but, go on. Yep. Go ahead. 
Go ahead. I was going to say, but one of the other areas that uh, pops up a lot in studies of corruption is the slippery slope into corruption, and the yeah. other character we mentioned earlier, Droge, um, is an example of that, how he comes in as the honest cop and slowly right. gets inculcated into the culture of corruption. Right. Right. Well, Ed Droge was a second cop that we that we we uh, came upon. He was uh, we'd already gotten Phillips, but Ed was was uh, a young cop. He was a hero. He'd been decorated, uh, and uh, uh, he was he had become sick of it and of uh, the department. He'd been on it six years, and he he wanted to quit and go into. Uh, College and law school. He had a, he was married and had a bunch of kids, and uh, he had this plan whereby he was going to go out to uh, UCLA and uh, uh, enroll in UCLA uh, and uh, on a while on leave, and then uh, resign from the department out there. And his uh, wife and kids would join him, and he would he would get through college and then ultimately go to law school. And that was his plan, and. As he was planning to go to California, he, he got involved in a uh, in a minor, a misdemeanor uh, drug bust, uh, and uh, the, he was scheduled to be to go to court, and it was adjourned. It was adjourned several times. Well, he had another uh, court appearance, so it was going to be the final court appearance that was scheduled after he was going to be in California, and he knew he wasn't going to be at this court appearance anyway. And the 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 defendant came up and, and offered him $300 if he would not show up at the next at the next court appearance, and then they'd probably get the thing dismissed. Uh, and he wasn't going to be there anyway. So he said, okay, I'll, uh, uh, yeah, I'll take the $300. And... Uh, uh, unfortunately for him, the guy's lawyer came to us, and we wired the transaction. And we we uh, he took two hundred dollars, as a matter of fact. And then uh, there were several conversations on the telephone between Droge and uh, Droge was the, the cop Droge and the uh, uh, the uh, defendant, and we had it we had them wired. And uh, then we didn't know anything about it. Then he left and went to California, and we found out. Uh, we went to, to, you know, pick him up or talk to him, and he was gone. And uh, at first we thought, well, that's that, because we didn't have the money to go to California to get him. And then I had a, a buddy, a Joe Foley, was a friend who uh, had been at the firm I was at, and he had also been in the DA's office. And he was at the firm that I had been with, Cahill Gordon. And I heard that he was out in California. And so I called him up and said, hey, would you do me a favor while you're out there? And I sent him a tape of Droge talking to our agents in a inculpatory way. I said, would you look up this guy, Ed Droge? I told him where he could find him and play him this tape and have him give me a phone call. And, uh, and Foley went out and looked him up. And the guy had just paid his tuition for UCLA and uh, they played in the tape, and he said, what do I do now? And uh, I said, well, call this guy Armstrong. And he called me up, and I said, uh, well, I think you better you better come on back here. And the guy said, I don't think I have enough money for a round-trip fare. And I paused, and he said, you're telling me I'm not going to need a round-trip fare. And I said, no, I don't think you're going to need a round-trip fare. <laughs> and... Uh, he, uh, but if you come in, we'll see what we can do for you. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, if you help us, maybe we can help you. And he came in and he told us about, uh, he was what was known in the department as a grass eater. Uh, there were meat eaters and grass eaters. Phillips was certainly a meat eater. Those are the, 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 the real, the, the guys who were really tough and they're, they're into it and they, uh, uh, into big corruption and they make a, 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 a lot of money either on heavy scores that uh, that uh, can go up to you know fifty hundred thousand dollars or an organized corruption and the grass eaters were the guys who just kind of went along with uh, with uh, corruption and just took the small pickings and Ed was. Uh, a, uh, a, a real grass eater. This distinction was drawn by 
fellow named uh, Sid Cooper, who was uh, an internal affairs uh, 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 he was head of it actually, and he he was Frank Serpico's mentor and a real tough guy and real funny. And he, he, as I say, he would call people meat eaters and grass eaters. And Ed was uh, a real a real minor grass eater, and he told us about. Uh, you know the the slide into corruption. How he was out the very you know, early on. He was doing a a uh, a tour with a <clears throat> with an old guy who was an old veteran, and a car comes by with a drunk guy driving. It's about two or three in the morning, and there's a minor accident and up against the wall. And they go running down, and the guy takes out ten dollars and says, "Look, why don't you just let me go, officer?" And the, the older cops takes the ten dollars and says, "All right, get out of here. Drive carefully." And uh, and the, the cop puts the ten dollars in his pocket, takes out five bucks, and hands it to uh, to Ed. Ed looked at it. He said, "I looked at the five dollars. I didn't want the five dollars. I didn't think we ought to let the guy go. But what am I gonna?" stand up to this guy he's been on the job for 15 20 years and tell him what to do and bit by bit by bit by bit he uh he uh took money and got in himself into a, a life that was uh however small nevertheless it was uh it was uh, uh, uh demeaning and uh he said at one time when when my son looked at me and said, "Daddy, I want to be a cop," that, that decided me. I want to. He said, "I want to get out of here because I don't want my son to be what I am." And uh, well, he testified about his experiences too. And uh, ultimately, uh, um, we uh, <clears throat> we we couldn't we couldn't save them their jobs. They were they were fired. But ultimately, we worked it out, and Ed wound up. Uh, he wound up uh, going to Yale and uh, and becoming a prep school teacher. Has no. been a prep school teacher for the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah. But so, uh, how did the commission end up? So you had your hearings, um, but what were the outcomes of the hearings and the report? Well, the the we had the hearings. We had Phillips as a test, as a witness and Droge as a witness, and we had a couple of other cops and we had. Uh, gamblers and we had uh, the the uh, a tow truck operator who was uh, uh who testified for us about the corruption and we had the stuff with tank and slim the, the two junkies and we put on these two weeks of hearings which were really really uh they hit new york and the country really with a with a bang we had no idea when we started out whether our hearings were going to do what they were intended to do, uh, which was to bring to the attention of the public the conditions of of corruption in the department that existed, so that the uh, the attitude that prevailed could be broken through. There was inertia of uh, uh, of, of an attitude of don't do anything about it that allowed. Uh, the whole department to be just uh, just wallowing really in, a, in, 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 in corruption. People who weren't corrupt tolerated it, and they con- considered it as a condition that nothing could ever could ever cure. But nobody ever said anything about it. And and the cops, the the, the brass would say, "Well, there's a few rotten apples in the barrel, but uh, uh, but." The, the barrel was okay when in fact the whole department was, was just had this kind of kind of uh, aura uh, of toleration of corruption and uh, in it and uh, what we figured we could do if we get out and make a really spectacular showing of what everybody really suspected anyway then cops could deal with it. Then the department could deal with it, and they could they could turn it around, and that's what we did. And mm. it really was a uh, uh, a spectacular set of hearings. We had um, we had television coverage for the time, which was just extraordinary all over the place. We had public uh, television covered as live, uh, uh, gavel to gavel, uh, and. Uh, uh, the, the first set of hearings lasted for two weeks, and during that period of time, uh, 
They were uh, covered, as I say, gavel to gavel, and then repeated on uh, in, in in full that night. And then on the weekend, they showed them. They showed the whole thing again, back to back. So you saw nothing but the earrings all week long. And one and of the we channels were, uh, was going to cut it, and the audience said, "No, no, everyone wanted to watch it." Is that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, well, the public broadcasting channel was doing it live. Yeah. Uh, said they ran out of money after a few days, and uh, and the public clamor was such. And I think somebody came through and funded it, and right. uh, and they, uh, they they kept going. But there was all of the the, the TV cameras, uh, TV channels, and everybody were there. Uh, there, there was actually uh, television from from Europe that came over to to cover it, and uh, it it was it it succeeded in what we wanted to do. It certainly it certainly brought out into the open the 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 conditions that there were there were in the. Uh, in in the department and it was uh um uh, and the the cops you know tried to uh oh i don't know the the, the pba the union tried to uh, attack us and saying that we were mccarthyites and we're doing like like mccarthyism and um to some degree i guess they had a good argument we were we were we were out there to to get publicity, and yeah. uh, and, and we did. Yeah. But the publicity served a purpose, and because without the publicity, the story wasn't getting yeah. out there, and people weren't then sort of that was our the theory. We could end it. Yeah, that that yeah. was our theory. Our, yeah. our theory was that that uh, you know the blue wall of silence, the whole tradition that politicians wouldn't want to offend the cops, the, and everybody was just standing around. Uh, uh, you know, not uh, like the the emperor's clothes that everybody's standing around, just not mentioning what everybody knew was probably true. And then I think we also educated people as to what was going on because some of the stuff that, that Phillips uh, particularly uh, testified about was stuff that that wasn't uh, wasn't really known. I mean, what one of the things that came out Serpico had already brought out. To uh, to some degree, but we confirmed it because we had Phillips uh, go into uh, the uh, uh, plain clothes divisions. He, he went in to to suggest corrupt arrangements uh, uh, with plain clothesmen, whereby we could get tapes so that we could prove that the situation in plain clothes was as Frank had said it was, and. And that was this: uh, the plain clothesmen were just uh, uh, um, uh, the, the, the group in the department arranged in in divisions around the the, the department who handled the gambling. And uh, what these guys, there were only I believe there's there's seven hundred of them, maybe four hundred. I forget right now. But there were uh, out of thirty two thousand. But there were. They'd be in a division, and their job was to was to was to suppress uh, gambling places, numbers, uh, sports betting, whatever it was. And instead, they went around and collected money from these guys, and they would just spend all their time going around collecting money from the gamblers they were supposed to arrest. And then at, they would put the money all in a big pot. And at the end of the the, the month, everybody in the division the, of the plain clothesmen. Would uh, take out a share, and the uh, the uh, supervisors would get a share and a half. And uh, uh, when you moved, it was like it was like shares in a corporation because uh, some divisions were worth a lot more than others because there was a lot more gambling going on in those in those areas. And uh, so, if you got sent from one division to another, you didn't get paid in the you didn't get your share in the division to which you were transferred for the first two months because they wanted to check you out but that's okay because you got severance pay from the division that you left so it the was same, that the well same organized. thing happened in australia they used to run pension schemes when you left the lucrative branch so keep your mouth right? shut you got a small yeah. percentage of what you used to receive yeah well, look, it was that well organized and, yeah. uh, over the whole city i mean uh, yeah well, look, we've so, taken up a, a lot of your time today. Just as a, a final question, um, 
do you want to reflect like over I mean, the past I suppose it's been 40 years what do you think were the long lasting effects of the NAP commission I think that we were successful uh, of the meat eaters and the grass eaters what what we succeeded in doing is publicizing things so that the grass eaters uh uh, went straight. Uh, the, the the name of the book is They Wished They Were Honest, and that comes from a quote by Frank Serpico, who said at the time, he said that, uh, he, he said 10% of the department is absolutely corrupt, and 10% of the department is absolutely honest, and the other 80%, they wish they were honest, which was pretty profound, because the, the 80% those are the grass eaters, and I think that the result of the NAP Commission was that the 80% became honest, and that you, after that, you could be corrupt if you wanted to, but you couldn't brag about it anymore. You had to lie about it. Uh, we ran into cops that, that actually bragged about doing corrupt things they didn't even do, just to be one of the boys. Well, that attitude, I think, changed following the NAP Commission. And, and and the grass eaters just really dried up. Now, the meat eaters, the real crooks, that actually got worse because the drug culture got worse. And as the drug culture got worse, the department didn't keep up with the machinery for catching the real bad crooks. And it resulted 20 years later in another commission the, run by Judge Mullen, who is... Uh, uh, distinguished judge here, and uh, he, he ran another commission that looked into the conditions at that time, and they found that the department had, uh, had had stayed clean at the grass eater level pretty much. I mean, corruption was no longer tolerated in the department. There were no none of these pads, as they call them, of the organizations of of, of gamblers uh, getting paid into a pot and, and being paid out in shares. There's none of that organized stuff. But the few crooks who were supposed to get caught, the machinery for catching them had atrophied and had to be reformed. And as a result of the Mullen Commission, the the IAD, Internal Affairs Division, was turned into a bureau, made Internal Affairs Bureau and beefed up and formal, and, and, and a lot of reforms were made so that the machinery for catching the meat eaters was reformed. And that's 20 years ago now. <clears throat> so I think, I mean, there had been a police scandal every 20 years since 1894. And you know, we came along 20 years after the one before us. The Mullen Commission came along 20 years after us. But I think as a result of of what we accomplished and of what the Mullen Commission accomplished, namely the, the 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 professionalization of the of the of the IAB to catch the the meat eaters, I think the department today. Under and under the leadership that that it has now, uh, it, it doesn't need any more commissions right now. I think it's I think it's it, it, corruption is no longer tolerated in the department, uh, and I think that uh, sure there's corruption. Of course, there's corruption, but uh, uh, you, you got to sneak around to be corrupt. You can't be wide open the way it used to be, and the crooks. Uh, they've got a uh, IAB. Uh, they got a guy named Campisi down there who runs IAB, uh, uh, who is really, really good, tough, and and again, they don't get everything, but I, I think they do a very good job of it. So uh, I may be being too optimistic, but uh, I have something of a vantage point to see it because uh, the Mullen Commission created a, an oversight body to kind of keep tabs on, on corruption in the department. And uh, six years ago, uh, I became chairman of that body. So, oh, uh, so, we're, yeah. so we're, well, it's uh, <laughs> for a, a, a dollar a year, you know, it's uh, one of those. <laughs> and, You're a saint. But it's, 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 uh, but it's, you know, it's interesting, and it, it gives you something of a vantage point into what, Going into the de- uh, going on in the department right now, we just have there's a half a dozen of us. It's not a big 
group, but we, we and and that helps. And I think talking to other people, I think they share the view that as long as you get the kind of leadership that we have from Ray Kelly, who is the uh, the uh, police commissioner here, uh, and as long as uh, as, uh, as 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 there's kind of vigilance is kept up. Uh, that uh, the the department is 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 doing pretty well. Excellent, excellent. Well, look, thank you very much for the interview today, and I highly recommend anybody with an interest in either organised crime or police ethics and corruption has a read of this book. I really enjoyed it. So, um, Michael Armstrong, thank, thank you, you very again much. for being on New Books and Terrorism, Organised Crime. 